<coughs> so this is my uh, final uh, talk at uh, this month at the Forest Refuge, and I uh, <coughs> wanted to just uh, sort of give you a general uh, overview of what I've been trying to do so that you get a sense of of the aim that uh, this course was uh, attempting to take. And uh, usually when I teach, I try to give each of us a reach within that teaching, uh, something that doesn't settle easily with us, that uh, stirs us. We sense it's correct. They have to have that sense that it's on the right track. But it may not be something that we've actually realized. And so it's an, it remains a kind of an annoyance in some way. It's like a, a stone in your shoe. And it provides an impetus, an energy, or can, when used uh, in its most uh, skillful way, it provides a, an, an energy, an inquiry, a what's going on here sort of direction for us, which is extraordinarily important in uncovering that which we do not know. It's very easy to stay within the ritualized Dharma talks, well within our comfort range, and just kind of settle and perhaps see the nuances of what we already know. It's another thing to cast yourself out of what's familiar and to see if there's something out there that can that is accessible to you that you have not reached for prior to this. Now the downside of that is that if we are prone to self-doubt, if the stone is thrown too far, we can say, oh, you know, I can't do that. And we implode upon ourselves. And some of us in the course of this month regrettably have done that. <clears throat> and it can also lead to discouragement and self-doubt about whether we'll ever have that particular wisdom uh, and instead of seeing what is actually arising in that moment that's creating the sense of, of self-discouragement, the doubt, the personal anxiety, the sense of self-inadequacy, we uh, act from that doubt and essentially say that this is uh, impossible for us to see. So I, mostly I get that response as well in the courses I teach. It's not meant to do that, of course. It's meant to keep, keep us, keep us what? Keep us that, keep us that. I don't know even know how to say that. You see, the, you see how the vitality of that? I just you see the richness of that. You see the possibilities that lie in that. The potential. It's your and my potential that can never be taken away from us. We can cover it with our sense of inadequacy or our doubt, but it can never be taken from us. It always springs back in richness, in delight, 
And when we live within the interface between what we know and what we don't, that is the richest moment possible. And so to allow us to interface with that from time to time, with whatever practices you're doing and whatever way that you're doing those practices, not to ritualize the practice. Ritualization is the opposite of that. It's staying in the mundane and the conditioned and the already known aspects of ourselves. So I conceived this diagram for us to pursue in the course of this time together this month. And I think that somewhere on that diagram, each of us are tested in the ways that I just mentioned. And what I wanted to talk about is a different aspect of the diagram tonight. If you looked at it, you'll see that the left half of it uh, is uh, labeled the, the realm of practice. And then on the right half of it is the realm of abiding. And those are two very important uh, components or evolution an evolutionary theme within our practice. Within a single practice, you'll find both of those at some point. Sometimes uh, you'll be in one, sometimes you'll be in the other, but predominantly you're on one side of that or the other for, for, much of the, uh, for, for a long period of time. And I just want to uh, talk a little bit to show you immediately what I mean by the realm of practice and the realm of abiding. Now, uh, let's just take a typical hindrance that arises within all of our practice. Let's take sleepiness. And when we're sleepy in the realm of practice, we have a lot that we're trying to do about sleepiness. We take it as a, an affront. To <laughs> Somehow, I, you know, I can't keep a straight face. <laughs> It's an affront to us, you know. It's like, I'm sleepy, goddammit. <laughs> Just remembered I was recording. <laughs> but it's, the, the, the point is that, you know, there's, there's a, the troops are rallied here. We know that somehow that's not what's supposed to be the face of our practice. There's a judgment that goes along with it that creates a kind of tension associated with it. We, do what we can uh, in our little mat that, uh, that allows us to sit up straight maybe or to stand up or whatever we do. But there's a tension with it. And we are having uh, an attack, we might even say, of sleepiness. And uh, there's a lot of, of uh, resistance going on, but a kind of... Um, sense that uh, we need to do something about it, basically. Okay, so that's the realm of practice. It's very strongly identified as I am sleepy. There's no question I am sleepy. Don't give me some kind of impersonalization of it. I'm sleepy, period. That's the way it really looks to me. Right? <laughs> Sleepiness is happening. <laughs> okay, so... Then the realm of abiding, what does the realm of abiding look like? Okay, the realm of abiding is 
what's holding sleepiness. Dead stop. Dead stop. You see, the question has nothing to do with sleepiness now. Sleepiness is a form that's passing through the formlessness that holds the sleepiness. So there is absolutely no resistance to sleepiness at all. There is no confrontation. There is no resistance. There is no argument with sleepiness. Which is a very different set of circumstances than we just went through in the realm of practice. Or said from a different angle, I'm sleepy, no question about it, but is awareness sleepy? See, to even consider that question, you have to be extraordinarily still. Because you have to get a sense whether awareness is even around enough to acknowledge that sleepiness is occurring. That's far and removed, different than mindfulness. Mindfulness is what I was trying to do within the turmoil of my angst about being sleepy. I'll, I'll be mindful of it. That's another strategy I apply within the struggle I have for sleepiness. But is awareness sleepy? Now, you see, the question is, do we want to go in that direction? Because that is inevitably the direction the practice leads. It leads from the realm of practice to the realm of abiding. But what happens in the realm of abiding is that we are taken out of the picture. It's not about us anymore or our nobility of combating sleepiness. We have been wiped clean. Now what I'm interested in in pursuing tonight, for lack of a better word, and I've been trying for about the last two hours to find an appropriate word for what I'm about to say, can't find one, so I'm just going to use the most the word that comes to mind. The mechanism within each of these paradigms, the paradigm of abiding and the paradigm of practice, the mechanism in which it uses it, that it uses in order to accommodate any disturbances that are occurring. Okay, now let's look at the paradigm of practice. The paradigm of practice uses the mechanism of adaptation to accommodate whatever might be arising within it that seems to be disturbing it. So I just mentioned about sleepiness, but you could run through the hindrances. And what happens in the sleepiness is that we're trying to create the right field within ourselves to be able to handle the sleepiness that's occurring. So we're trying to adapt ourselves. We're trying to relax with it. We're trying to be present to it. We're trying not to judge it. And each of that attempt, each of those efforts, is an attempt at the modification of a resistance that we sense in ourselves that is not helpful, which is actually the pain 
or the suffering associated with having sleepiness a part of our system. And we, we're constantly moving in the direction of a new strategy, of a new adaptation. Now let me just pull back for a second because we need to get a sense of how our species uses adaptation skillfully in order to have survived. So then you get a sense of the genetic predisposition to use adaptation within our spiritual practice in order to survive. So if you look at ourselves as a species, you will see us, our species, living virtually in every aspect, in every area of the world. At the highest mountain ranges, in the lowest valleys, in the coldest Arctic continents, in the deserts of wherever they might be, somehow the human body has been able to adapt to those circumstances and live, and here's an important word, comfortably once it has adapted. Because once it adapts, it settles into a comfort range. This is my comfort range. And it doesn't matter what the comfort range is. It could be zero degrees. Or it could be 100 degrees. Now, you know, when I came here, it was a shock to the system. But virtually in the month I've been here, I brought the clothes I needed. I stay inside. I don't go for long walks. And if I go, there, they're you know, quick steps to keep the blood flowing. And I, I have accommodated weather conditions that I'll never find at home in Seattle. Doesn't get to zero. And so, but it just shows how adaptable we are. You know, first it's a kind of a, an affront to the system, and then you figure out a way to be able to work with it. And, and at the end of a month, at the end of two years or 10 years, this is your home. And there's a comfort in this home. And if you stray outside of it, you think about home. And so that comfort begins to build around our adaptations. Now, it's not just the external conditions that we adapt to. It's also our internal conditions. And this is an important point. We get used to saying what we say to ourselves about ourselves. We get used to, I mean, the, the brutality, really, of what we say. We're a fine whipping boy, girl. We get used to our attitudes. We get used to our beliefs. We get used to our opinions. We get used to the way our consciousness expresses itself in the world. We get used to our drama. And what happens, just as in the external habituation that occurs, we develop a comfort level within our internal life as well. We expect a certain drama, and if we don't, we'll create it unconsciously so that we'll have that sense of comfort around us. Depending upon our early childhood experiences, we often try to mimic those situations in our life going forward. So it's not always to our advantage but it's to our liking. It's what we're, we know ourselves to be. 
And because of that comfort range, and this is true for both the external and internal comforts, we will fight to maintain them, literally or figuratively. If somebody comes in and invades our igloo, we will defend it. If somebody comes in and questions our opinions, we will defend them. And so the mechanism for the paradigm of practice is one of adaptation. Now, here's the important point, is that at some point, we get sensitive to the fact of whether we are creating the pain of resistance in relationship to our comforts, to our inward psyche, to the psychological sentences we tell ourselves, to the beliefs that we have lived with our whole life. When we look with a little more subtlety, a little more nuance, we see the pain that those areas of adaptation have created for us. And since we are no longer projecting that pain out as somebody else's responsibility, you made me angry, we are now accepting those as a limitation to our comfort. And we are then willing to change our comfort. And so we change our comfort begrudgingly because we don't like to disturb things. And so we say, OK, this sense of self-hatred is a limitation. I realize I've been living with it. I realize I'm comfortable with it. And I realize it's a limitation. And so then we take the strategy to adapt out of that particular expression of ourselves into a more comfortable one. Here's an important point. We are still in the same paradigm. As we adapt from one change shifting to a different one, from the sense of self-hatred to the sense of self-aversion, less than hatred, to the sense of self-rejection, a little better, to the sense of self-dislike, a little better, to the sense of self-neutrality, to the sense of self-liking. Little shifts, right? And so we are willing to change. But what we're not doing is we're not moving. We're just modifying the language that we have already been giving ourselves. We're modifying, if I can say, our narrative, our inward narrative. We're not ending the narrative. There's still an I narrative going on. We've just done some modification with it. Many of us think that that modification is dharma. It's modification. It's behavior modification. It's not wrong. It's not bad. In fact, I, I was uh, meeting on our usual sangha night, and I heard two um, rather experienced students talking. And I overheard one of them say, well, why don't you just change your attitude? As if that were the crucial dharma point. And I thought, you know, we get very skillful and being able to work with our minds so that we can change our attitude. If we see the glass half empty, we can release the thoughts of emptiness 
and we can begin to infuse a sense of fullness into that glass and call it half full. Or we can see thoughts that are uh, burdensome and somewhat uh, heavy and tiresome, and we can start releasing those with more and, and bringing instead more buoyant thoughts. We can have positive thinking, and we get so that we get very um, skillful at being able to handle our internal world by replacing one piece with another. And this does alleviate a lot of tension within our internal world, there's no question. So it's not as if we aren't moving in the path or the direction of less suffering, it's just that it doesn't end suffering. And this is the path that ends suffering. And we can't stay in our narrative to end suffering. <laughs> Think what I just said. You see, because there's always going to be tension around wherever we divide, uh, wherever we build our new comfort zone. There has to be, because then we are dependent upon the conditions of that comfort maintaining itself so that we will not suffer. And they never do. It's either an invasion from the outside or an invasion from the inside. And then we rally, fight, argue until we see the futility of that and the pain associated with that, and then we're willing to adapt ourselves yet again. It took me a long time to realize what I was doing. Nobody ever told me this. Matter of fact, nobody told me anything that I'm telling you this month. It was all self-discovery. And that's the way it has to be for all of us. Even though you hear the words, you haven't discovered it. We each have to go in and see for ourselves what are the actual logistics and how we work with difficulty, desire, so to speak, and how we alleviate our suffering in relationship to that. And I think what you'll find, for the most part, not for all of you, there are many in here, you, that have not only followed where I've thrown the rock, but you've caught it as well. And to you, I acknowledge. But it's important for us to get a sense of how it is or what it is that we're bringing forth to our practice that is supposed to be the fruit of the practice and not just the ease of our life. Because it's interesting, the reason I bring this up, and I see it virtually among a cross-section of, of experience levels. Here we are in the room. They're putting up roofing tile. And I look around, and your faces are going. <laughs> and I'm thinking, that doesn't look like end of suffering to me. And we've lost our bearing. And we may have been sitting for decades. And a, a simple irritant comes along. And we're trying to now 
we have our comfort range, which is the quiet in the, all of this, and it's being disturbed. And we have to adapt out of it. Okay, now I'll listen to it. You're supposed to end at 8.30. You know, it's like that. That's how we listen. Conditionally listen, too. This, see, it requires something from us that I don't know whether... whether we want to go in that direction. I don't know. But it's there for you if you do. And my job is just to say, okay, look, here it is. Now take it or not. Because there's another choice. And that's the realm of abiding. Now, I want to start with a story. 1941. Was that the year Pearl Harbor? Okay, 1941. FDR in the White House calls together all the car makers. He declares war on Japan. So the car makers, General Motors, Ford, all that, they come together. And he says, uh, okay, I want... Uh, I don't remember the number, but let's say 25,000 tanks and 100,000 airplanes by the end of the year. And uh, the car makers say, well, we can't do that. You know, we're, we're uh, an assembly line for cars, and we've got to keep making cars. And he said, no, no, you, you don't understand. There will be no more car making. I want 25,000 tanks and 100,000 airplanes by the end of the next year. And they did it. It was a complete change of paradigm because the urgency was there for them to do it. And for two years, 42 and 43, no cars were produced in this country. Because when the paradigm was switched, that was it. There was no argument. There was no counterpoint. Well, how about, about 12,000 and 12,000 cars? No. This is what we're going to do. And I think it was because of everyone saw the severity of the situation that there was absolutely taken from us any argument. Many of us have not bottomed out sufficiently from the paradigm of practice. We still practice. It works for us because it does allow some alleviation of the tensions that are associated with my life. But we're not disillusioned by the control we still have over our practice. And it's that point that sends us into a new paradigm. Not despondency, disillusioned at your own sense of willful practice. At some point, I realized that all I had ever been doing was just this was a self-made practice. I had been following my own guidance, my own sense of will and need and description of where I was going. It was entirely self-contained. And I got sick of listening to myself. 
And it was tension-filled, and it was quantifiable, and it was always judgmental. How was I doing? How was I going? You know? And this disillusionment that must fill in the void, must come to us, is not very pleasant to go through. But it's a very important aspect of the practice to go through. Because at that point, you don't care what happens. You just can't go back to that kind of that kind of resistance. Then you're willing to build tanks and airplanes. How many of you, I'm, don't, I'm not asking this for a show of hands, but we, perhaps all of us at some point have fasted. Now, I, I fasted one day a week for two and a half years. And for a long period of time, my fasts looked like this. I would get through noon till about 4 o'clock when I really got hungry, and then I'd eat. And I feel like a failure and a complete, you know, just miserable. And I say, by God, next Wednesday, I remember the day, I'm going to fast. So, you know, next Wednesday would come and I would do it again and again. So after a series of Wednesdays came, finally I said to myself, I'm not eating. I don't care. Maybe I'll die. I was young and dramatic, okay? <laughs> so I just, it, it, I closed out that possibility. In fact, I made sure, you know, that the food I would normally go through, I didn't have at hand. And I made it through that day. Once I made it through the day, once the mind saw that I meant what I said, I was not going to eat, it became easy to fast. It was until it was sure that I wasn't going to eat, which is what it wanted me to do because that's pleasurable, it would argue me into the refrigerator. But once I knew that, that was it. And when I was a monk, we would eat one meal a day, and that would be it. And you'd think, boy, how'd you ever do that? It was simple. Because once you realize that you were not going to eat, I was not going to eat afternoon, it was done. It wasn't even a problem. My mind did not go there, which is what the rule is supposed to do. It clears out that distraction of what the next meal is going to be like. Clears it out. Now, what I'm speaking about here is not adaptation. Adaptation is the configuration of your inward experience to set the new circumstances that are arising so that now you can adjust and be reasonably comfortable within those new circumstances. And when you adjust out of the old circumstances into the new, you go through a series of grief responses. You have to give up what you loved before, your home, your comfort, to organize yourself to now be ready for the new set of circumstances. And you go through grief. You go through 
being uh, denying that you're going to have to do it. I'm not doing that. I'm not. It's like climate change. I'm not. I'm not going to cut down on my travel. I don't. I'm not going. And then you go through anger, and usually anger. I can't think of a single incident of anger that isn't associated with grief, with the need to have to change. Then you go through compromise. Then you go through, damn, I'm going to have to do this. And then you don't get to acceptance. Acceptance is not there. You get to resignation. All right. What's this new territory? What's this new weather I've got to adjust to? And that's really where it lands, on resignation. But the paradigm I'm talking to now, the paradigm of switching from cars to tanks, there's one step. And then there's acceptance. There's no modification. There's no fine-tuning the channels. There is no, this is an important point, there is no accompanying narrative alteration. This is not about changing our inward logic to fit the new circumstances. This is about surrender, not surrendering to anything, surrendering to what you're surrendering is your need to be separate from. That's what we're surrendering. You surrender your separation. And you realize that anything you bring between yourself and the new accommodating experience that you have to adjust to is not separate. You're maintaining your separation. And you get to the new comfort level, and you have the sense of being separate within your comfort level, this new set of circumstances. But that's not what I'm referring to here. That's why the right side of that diagram is surrender, surrender. Because now in the realm of abiding, there is no disturbance. There's stillness. There's no rippled. Throwing a rock in the, you know, tongue, I've got to change. It's simply release. Why? What are we releasing to? We're releasing into reality. We're not creating an alternative reality that we have to adapt to. We're surrendering to the reality that exists. And so it's just quiet. It's not even a movement. It's not even an altercation. It's simply from quiet to quiet, from stillness to stillness. So 
If we look at the comparison table between the two, you'll see that adaptation is slow. It's genetic. It's evolutionary. It means moving along a grief response in which I'm adjusting my psychology, my narrative, so that I can now accommodate this new situation. So I can get the, the new situation with the least pain. It continues to pers per it continues to sustain the current paradigm. I am very much in and through the change that I am undertaking. And it is the way most of us define our practice. Which is not wrong. It's just limited. And if your heart wants the unlimited, which is the reason I bring it up, because that's what my heart wants. And I think that if I can just say it in the right way, I can ignite your heart to want that too. Because I want that for you. But without fooling ourselves, what does this really look like? You see, this is a switch. This is a, a this is a tremendous change. Not an accommodating incremental change. That's why we don't talk about from this change. We do not talk about lifetimes. We don't even talk about time because time is a manufactured fabricated reality within the paradigm of adaptation. I'm changing from this to that. And it's felt as liberating. And it's felt as the end of suffering. May it be so. Can we sit for a minute or two?
most of you, many of you, just in the course of that talk, entered it. You caught the rock. Now relax deeply into it, for this is your home, which knows no adaptation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.